I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello there and welcome to the Times Business Podcast, where we're going to look ahead to the stories and the events that are going to be grabbing the headlines and moving markets in the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. This week, I'm going to let the EU President Donald Tusk introduce the podcast. There is no reason to to pretend that this is a happy day, neither in Brussels nor in London. Nicely done, sir. Well, to help me inject some light on this and uh, hopefully leave you in an optimistic frame of mind, I'm joined by Robert Lee, the industrial editor of The Times, Marcus LaRue, our trade correspondent, and Callum Jones, The Times markets reporter. Welcome to you all. Uh, Before I start with you, Bob Lee, This is how the Prime Minister set out what she wants from Brexit. I want us to be a truly global Britain, the best friend and neighbour to our European partners, but a country that reaches beyond the borders of Europe too. A country that goes out into the world to build relationships with old friends and new allies alike. And that is why I have set out a clear and ambitious plan for the negotiations ahead. It is a plan for a new, deep and special partnership between Britain and the European Union. A partnership of values, a partnership of interests, a partnership based on cooperation in areas such as security and economic affairs, and a partnership that works in the best interests of the United Kingdom, the European Union and the wider world. Bob, the Prime Minister there, Ah, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But uh, looking ahead in in terms of this podcast, we've got some SMMT, Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, uh, figures coming out next week. First of all, what sort of reaction, what are they going to do now, if you like, to get on board with these Brexit talks? What can they do to help themselves? Well, what we get next week is the the new car registrations, the sales figures for March, which will be interesting uh, enough in themselves because it will give us a very good sort of window into how the consumer economy is going. Interesting enough, in terms of the car sales, they've been been down uh, in two of the last three months and the industry generally is expecting a slowdown in car sales. The really important stuff, of course, is uh, what you're alluding to, is uh, what the British car industry is actually about. And this is where we're talking about the manufacturers. Uh, there's a cloud hanging over Vauxhall, which is up in Cheshire and in Luton. Uh, there's a cloud over the Ford engine factory uh, in, in South Wales. Uh, but there's upsides as well. Um uh, Geely, the Chinese uh, motor manufacturer, uh, has just opened um, a plant just north of Coventry to make the new London cabs. So um, it's a bit of a curate's egg. Uh, and if you speak to anyone in the automotive industry, they actually just don't know where things are going either. Come. You can see how 
important this industry is to ministers right now. Only this week they've uh, they've released their meetings with various private and public officials over I think between the months of September and December. And if you look at the who the who the business ministers have been meeting, it's wall to wall people from this industry. So it's people from various companies, it's people from SMMT, and it's very interesting that these are the people that they're spending the most time talking to. From the trade perspective, the car manufacturers are probably you know, the, the the emblematic example of the difficulties between extricating yourself from the European Union um, at the same time as turning towards a, a newfangled global marketplace because of the, the nature of the supply chain. That, and this is true of other sectors as well, that so much uh, of, of British manufacturing um, relies on, on efficient, specialised suppliers with, with parts crisscrossing the, the, the channel. So I suppose the car industry is, is one of the biggest um, affected exports, one of, the, one of the industries with the most, the most at stake through, the, through these negotiations, but it's also probably the, the epitome of the challenges of, of untangling yourself from Europe and meeting you know, Liam Fox and Theresa May's vision of a, of a global free trading buccaneering Britain. The thing about the car industry at the moment is it's a bit of a cliche amongst the executives, but they all say it's going to change within the next three to five years more than it has done in the previous hundred years. And ministers uh, have just committed uh, 100 million, matched by the industry, so 200 million to actually uh, start investing in the next generation of automotive, which is uh, autonomous self-driving driverless cars that plus um, electrification um, of vehicles means that the the motor vehicle of 2025 will bear no relation to the one that's actually being produced and has been produced in this country so the real wins for this uh, uh, this industry in the UK is to actually get at the ground floor of automation um, and of electrification I was going to say, Callum, this is one of the areas that's interested me. I saw the announcement that, that, that Bob's talking there about. I did actually wonder what it was. I thought it was self-driving cars, but I wasn't <laughs> sure. I, there must be some of these bio, semi-biotech companies, aren't there? That Those are the companies people really should be looking at. You're looking for the star of tomorrow, someone who's going to produce the longest-lasting battery, the most intelligent software. So there must be opportunities out there, aren't there? You mean on the market? Yeah, yeah, and I think this is this. Uh, obviously, since since uh, since June last year, so over the par- over the past nine months, investors have spent a lot of time trying to search for the stocks which they think could benefit over the over the coming years uh, after after Brexit, and also disregarding Brexit. What will what as what as technology develops are the best stocks to be buying into? No one really seems to be. There's no one certain answer at the moment, though. That's one. We as we as we move forward nine months after after Brexit, no one entirely. Sh- is sure which stocks will particularly benefit in the same way that perhaps people that you look over across in the States and people seem to have, investors really have sort of decided which sectors will benefit most from a Trump presidency. One of the things, Bob, the other things that people have talked about, almost in parallel, we were going to be investing, and you and I have talked about this on the podcast before, in infrastructure, the roads, the big build. It hasn't happened so far, has it? Is it likely to, do you think? Well, they actually can't make their mind up about what they should invest in. Every time they put a report out, they want to build a road somewhere. There's a counter report saying build a road, you can create more congestion. You've got to start thinking a lot more uh, smart about this. Um, and there's there's an argument in the in the railway industry at the moment. Do we actually want electrification uh, with electric lines all the way down from here to South Wales? Or should we actually be thinking a different way of actually producing trains, hybrid trains that can run on batteries or on fuel cells? You've got to make that sort of next leap. And this is the argument about HS2. 
can we be assured that the people running HS2 are actually going to be providing the next generation technology or when it gets built by 2025, it's already out of date? That's a big problem though, isn't it? It probably is out of date. If you look at some of the the, the first group serving the West Country, they're the old slam dunk doors. I yeah. mean, goodness me. I know it's a bugbear of yours, Robert, as you go down to your <laughs> mansion in the Southwest. I knew that was going to come up. I just knew. <laughs> but yes. uh, that they are getting some new trains from next year. Uh, the problem is uh, Network Rail has uh, forgotten to actually electrify the line in time. So um, uh, they won't be running it there uh, as best they could. How much of a problem... Uh, in like you say, in terms of taking the the long view, is the fact that so, so much infrastructure investment seems to almost be a, a short term political gain taken by, obviously the, the the prime example still fresh in everyone's mind is is the former Chancellor George Osborne who used budget statement after budget statement to please certain MPs by announcing investment projects into infrastructure in, within their constituencies. But also there are certain MPs who who could do with pleasing their constituents by by getting a win on a certain campaign. Do you think that's damaging? to the long term? Yeah, yeah, of course it is. And um, uh, politicians by nature are short-term. Short there is a, a long-term issue where um, the Treasury hasn't got any money, where, how they're going, actually going to afford these um, infrastructure promises that they're actually making. Callum, in your case in particular, we've seen Lloyds of London, as I said, it's going to Brussels, many more in the industries that you cover, Bob, probably. There seems to be a trend now that we're going to be hearing this. We've got to get used to that, the fact that people have to move staff abroad to deal with the situation. I think that's I think that's right. And I think if you speak to people in the city, it's not a case of a it's not a case of whether they're going to be moving moving workers elsewhere to deal with Brexit. It's a case of how many staff they're moving. And I think uh, I always think back to, to Davos earlier early, earlier this year, or forgive me, was it late last year? It's all been a bit of a blur over the past few months. But when when chief executives were being very open about the fact that there was no question of the fact that they would have to respond to Brexit. But it was just a case of the, the the devil being in the detail. They seem to be happy to tell you in Davos. They certainly didn't want to say anywhere within the UK if in case they they might get pilloried. I mean, Marcus. I think most of them were probably fairly open about you know functions that depended on passport and and depended on serving European customers would probably have to go. There's no point waiting to see what David Davis can bring back from, from his negotiations with Michel Barnier. You just, just get on with it. There's very little downside to moving a, a you know a thousand or so people to, to Dublin or elsewhere. So that's what you're saying with, you know, the, the JP Morgan uh, were the latest to say that they were looking, they've taken out a lease, I think, with room for about a thousand or so. And that's the question, you know, that that if it is, if it will it stop at um, at the number of pe- the number of functions, the number of people who are dealing with Europe, in which case the the estimates are sort of you know five percent, you know four to six percent of 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 the the income and 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 workforce, which is which is pretty bad, you know. You could you you don't need to be a mathematical genius to work out that equals quite a lot of hospitals and um, and and schools in terms of the, the UK tax base, but it's not terminal. Um, the danger is if over time any of those new hubs develop critical mass for serving rest of world customers, um, and I think that's a sort of that's a probably a, a longer um, you know more strategic question. Uh, you, you don't see many signs at the moment that Frankfurt's ready to usurp the city, 
But, you know, Lloyds of London's a, a good example. They'll move people because certain business can't be, will no longer be, or there's a good chance that certain business won't be able to be written in, in London. That means all of the actuarial profession, you know, professionals, the brokers, perhaps eventually, and, and the capital uh, will, mo- will move with it. Um, and the network effects could be, could be, could be quite important, um, you know, but, but that's a longer, term, a longer term question. But it's not project fear anymore. It's pretty clear that people are moving jobs, um, you know, and it's, it, it, you know, it's probably a rounding error for the, for the city this, this year. I think it will be felt in a couple of years, but will it be terminal, terminal decline that some on the continent expect? I wouldn't count on it. It's interesting that on on Lloyd's of London they were very much obviously trying to play down this week their decision to to uh, to set up their headquarters in Brussels. But I was particularly interested in the fact that they said the decision of Brussels and of setting up shop there was entirely based on the need to. It's entirely based on on this need for them to be near regulators, but and to be to be near the decision makers, and that was very much what they were drum, drumming home that very little else mattered to them, and that was why they chose Brussels. That's a very good point that they need to be under the regulatory um, umbrella. The the dog that hasn't barked is Euroclearing. I mean, because that the you know it's an obscure area that few understand to do to do with interest rate swaps. But the but numbers, this is mean that they have to be their eurozone instruments, and they must be cleared in the eurozone countries. That, is that, that the bottom line. That is the theory. That's the theory. But if you speak to our esteemed colleague Harry Wilson, you said that plenty of it happens in in New York every day, and the ECB have no say say over that. Um, you know, so how much of that depends on 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 happening in, in in a sort of regulatory, you know, under the regulatory umbrella of the of the ECB? I I, I genuinely don't know, and I expect we'll we'll find out. But if you listen to, um, you know, Andreas Dombrat from you know from the Bundesbank was has said on numerous occasions that that um, outside. Outside the single market, this you know euro euro clearing will will have to will have to move, and that's where you get into the tens of thousands of jobs because that's a market where hundreds of billions of dollars are traded every day. Is there a danger? I'm going to ask each of the three of you. I mean, Bob and I are probably just about old enough, and I am older than Bob. I'll hold my hand up. But I used to older than me. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you, Bob. There's no need to really stick the boot in. But uh, anyway, uh, we used to refer to the brain drain. Very much people going off to the in the seventies, early eighties to America, not so much Europe, but to America. Is there a danger? Each of you, I'll start with you, Bob. That a lot of the intellectual capital that we have built up, the services people in the sector, of them physically moving, or do you think Britain can still create an economy where they'll feel happy to function, or would they prefer to work abroad? Do you think? It wasn't a brain drain just in um, uh, services uh, up until relatively recently. And even now, if you go to the big uh, uh, R&D plants in Germany, there's a whole load of English accents. People actually left because that's where the money was. They followed the money. That's where the investment was, BMW, Volkswagen, etc. Essentially, what you have to do is to reshore that R&D because the factory of the future doesn't have many people working in it. So you need those high value jobs and what the British, the automotive industry, for example, uh, the Brits are very good at engineering and they're very good at design. But you, you you need a Jaguar Land Rover, which is investing in this. And we don't have that many Jaguar Land Rovers in the UK. 
If you speak to people in the city at the moment, and I have asked this question quite a few times, there seems to be more more concern about uh, attracting people from abroad. So they're not necessarily worried in the long term about attracting bright young things to the city from from the UK and uh, around the UK. They're quite confident they'll be able to maintain the flow of of young people from from across the country coming to the to the city. They're more worried about uh, attracting foreign talent going forward and what Brexit will do in terms of well that people talk about of pulling up the drawbridge and obviously politicians are making a massive push right now to make the point that London is open and people are welcome and uh, and foreign talent is more than welcome to set up shop here but that message is the one they're really really worried about not necessarily playing out as well as politicians are hoping I I probably agree with that you hear a lot more concern from people uh, about the ability to keep attracting talent from from uh from from europe uh, and unskilled labor from 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 europe as well but bob's point i think is an interesting one about you know because we have outsourced so much to the the, the private sector and because so many of our biggest companies are quoted and, and and therefore judged frequently and on a daily basis by by financial metrics there is I think a sense, you know, that, that, that possibly there's a there's a poverty of ambition, and so you know you're talking about battery technology and 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 infrastructure and and whether you know the the whatever fills the place of VHS two will be the train of the future. All of this is you know cost benefit analysed to the to the nth degree. The big companies, the most money that's getting chucked at the cutting edge battery technology is private. It's not it's not from not from the quoted sector. Um, you know, and historically, a lot of the best British science and 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 engineering and technological breakthroughs came out of you know came out of state funded or state managed projects. Um, and we no longer, you know, it doesn't seem that we have we have the um, the, the, the 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 will to be. You know, to be perhaps it's a good thing that 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 there's not a you know that there isn't a a state-backed institute looking at battery technology. Maybe it was not you know maybe that's not 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 the place of of the state anymore. But it's a but I think it's a it's it's a moot point that we're asking universities, for example, to be more wedded to the needs the needs of industry, who in turn are more wedded to the needs of of fund managers. Um, you know, who in turn are under the cost to, to produce figures on a, on a quarterly quarterly basis, and that doesn't leave much room for you know the sort of the mission to Mars or whatever it might be, or or the next graphene or the next the next you know radar technology, whatever it happens to be. I can sort of hear Land of Hope and Glory playing in the background already. <laughs> Not allowed to pay; it's copyrighted. I'm sure it is, and then I'd be in trouble with our legal friends. And, and let's face it. They will win whatever happens. And it's uh, a good point to end it on. Thank you all very much indeed. I hope that's a reasonably optimistic note to end on. Uh, and remember, you can keep up to date with all the news and analysis uh, as it happens uh, on your phone, your tablet, and please in the paper. If you'd like to become a subscriber, just simply go to thetimes.co.uk. If you want to hear us weekly, you can subscribe through iTunes and uh, do feel free to post your comments. We'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Robert Lee, Marcus LaRue and Callum Jones. Please do follow them. They're all on Twitter and they'll keep you up to date. Join us again next week. Uh, Please do. And uh, thanks for listening. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.